In this news roundup of the week for the 6th of May 2022. A split in the EU over oil sanctions over Ukraine and a panic of the White House over being blamed for dead Russian generals. Elections in the UK and primaries in the US give clues on the fate of Boris Johnson and Donald Trump. The aftermath of the draft Roe v Wade judgment continues to send shockwaves through the US. We look at how much India is following China's lead on digital censorship and autocracy. And in this week's short thought, how rational discussion has again been squashed by ideology and wishful thinking. My name's Malin Baker. This is The Malin Baker Show. The war in Ukraine hit a more dramatic, desperate note this week as Russian forces ramped up a final bludgeoning assault on the holdout Azovstal steelworks in Mariupol, with some thinking Putin wants to be able to claim it as a gain for Russia's Victory Day celebrations on May the 9th. Russia agreed a three-day ceasefire to allow civilians to leave, but quickly disregarded that promise as they have numerous times over the last month or two. They stepped up shelling and a push onto the site by troops, leading to reports of bloody battles inside. While all that's happening, the EU has continued to struggle with its position. It created a plan to finally ban all oil imports from Russia, but what it most quickly achieved was to reveal the depth of the splits within the ranks, specifically Hungary, which rejected the proposal on the grounds that they would obliterate its energy security. Hungary relies on Russia for 100% of its oil. Every EU country has the power to veto sanctions, and Hungary said that it would only agree the ban if it was given a total exemption, at least in the short term. Now, it may not sound like it, but that actually counts as a concession by Viktor Orban, who had previously said that Hungary wouldn't support oil and gas bans at all. And it seems today that that has been successful in getting EU policy changed. Another step forward that did emerge is that Ukraine and Germany have patched up a simmering dispute. Ukraine had snubbed German President Frank Waller Steinmeier, who was told that he was not welcome to visit Kiev three weeks ago. That was because of Ukraine's perception of his previous support for Putin and the lack of same for Ukraine. That had led to Chancellor Olaf Scholz to refuse to visit, which in turn led Ukraine to mock him as a huffy bratwurst, which apparently is a German idiom for someone who has needlessly taken umbrage. Seems like an idiom that could find a bigger place in the current world we live in. But I digress. Anyway, all of that is over now. Zelensky spoke with Steinmeier on the telephone. Presumably they discussed things more mutually acceptable than types of German liver sausage. And he has now invited he and Schultz to visit Kiev. Interestingly, the EU-level setbacks led the Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi to argue that the EU should just grasp the logic of its situation and move towards becoming a de facto federal state in response to the Ukraine war. This would include doing away with the veto that every EU member state has on foreign policy issues. His call came on the same day that members of the European Parliament voted in favour of transnational election lists for its elections, highlighting that the momentum for further integration and steps towards a superstate is really still there. Meanwhile, the Pope made a startling intervention by expressing the view that NATO may have caused Putin to invade Ukraine by barking at Russia's door. 
Now, it's quite likely that the minor mirroring of a Putin talking point is calculated to try to achieve what he's been seeking since mid-March, which is a meeting between himself and Putin in Moscow. Apparently, the Kremlin has not yet responded to such requests. It is not returning his calls. They found time to do other things, though, like suggest that Israel is backing neo-Nazis because that's not a thing that anyone would find controversial. Putin spokesman Sergei Lavrov said in an interview that it was perfectly rational to imagine that Israel would be supporting Nazis. After all, he said, Adolf Hitler had Jewish blood and he added that the most rabid anti-Semites tend to be Jews. Needless to say, Israel was deeply offended and summoned Russia's ambassador for a dressing down and achieved what few people have ever gotten, an apology from President Putin. Although it wasn't flagged in the Russian version of the conversation after his phone call with the Israeli Prime Minister, Meanwhile, the US had a minor panic over Ukraine when the New York Times reported that US intelligence had tipped off Ukrainians on the location of senior Russian generals so that they could be killed. The government quickly contradicted the report, insisting, no, 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 it just provides battlefield intelligence to help the Ukrainians to defend their country. We do not provide intelligence with the intent to kill Russian generals, they said. Which raised the question, well, why not? I mean, because, you know, if you're defending your country, wouldn't it be an important strategy to take out the local senior controlling minds directing the battles against you? I don't think that's advanced military strategy, especially. Of course, the Biden team got fearful of the story because they are afraid that boasting too openly about how they're getting generals killed might push them over that invisible line where Russia decides to widen the war. Arguably, it's signs of weakness that encourage Russia to start the war in the first place. And if your policy involves making the sort of statements that take your audience for idiots, you might not be projecting the strength that you think you are. President Zelensky said that if the world had been as courageous as Ukraine and Britain, the world would be over right now. Being included in that accolade might have given Boris Johnson some very much needed consolation. Because in the UK, local elections were held this week. An event that I wouldn't generally mention here at all, except for the question that this election was always going to be about, which is would the Conservatives do so badly as to put Boris Johnson's position as Prime Minister in imminent peril? The scenario would be total Conservative wipeout across the country, devastation in the red wall seats that switched from Labour to Johnson in the general election, and all with people blaming Johnson's mistakes and blunders for that shift. So far, the message seems to be that didn't quite happen. Damage, but not on a cataclysmic scale. Particularly, the Red Wall seats seem to have kept away from shifting to Labour in major fashion. Some movement. Also, the Conservative Heartlands have reported at the point of shooting this video anyway, largely not to have seen a cataclysmic move away. So that leaves the obvious swing seats. And as is often the case, Labour has done extremely well in London, Liberal Democrats have made advances elsewhere, and Conservative votes have retreated, but not entirely collapsed in England. More negative in Scotland so far. So is that a bad enough result for the Conservatives? Next couple of days will be the judge. The mood music right now is probably not. 
In the early stages, we heard reports of Cabinet members gathering around Johnson in support, a clear indication of how this momentum game plays. If enough influential figures either state their support, or at least their lack of interest in using this moment to go for the kill, then Johnson limps on to blunder another day. If significant numbers start coming out with statements that the results have made them feel that now is the time, then you get the momentum in the opposite direction. And we've seen examples of both in embryo, as we would expect. The next couple of days, we'll see which one emerges most strongly. My expectation from what I've seen so far, and I'm nowhere near to any kind of inside information on this, is that these results will not be sufficient to cross the line to get Johnson removed. The fact of the Ukraine war where he gets credit for his handling and the perceived absence of strong challengers, those will discourage the only voters who matter in all of this, Conservative MPs. Particularly because of Labour's failure to break through in the red wall seats, there's a perception amongst Conservatives, rightly or wrongly, that Labour leader Keir Starmer is too posh and out of touch to appeal to the working class areas that were traditional Labour heartland. They will have been encouraged as well with the late breaking news that Keir Starmer is about to be investigated by the police for potentially having broken lockdown rules himself, which would go some way to blunting some, not a lot, but some of the fury currently held against Johnson on that issue. While that's been happening in the UK, election-related action has also been happening in the US, and that has been predominantly focused on the similarly important question, how much influence does Donald Trump still have within the GOP? Again, the answer to that question remains a work in progress, but certainly some early results in Republican primaries has come back with the answer, quite a lot. So, for instance, Trump's endorsement of J.D. Vance, a candidate who was not seen as a front-runner for most of the campaign, Trump's support is credited with boosting him over the line to secure the nomination. As politically diverse Republicans as Mitt Romney and Josh Hawley both suggested that results from primaries so far cemented Trump's current status as kingmaker. Now, there'll be a lot more tests of that coming through in the coming month, and it seems likely that not all of Trump's picks will do so well. That said, Vance's status, along with Ron DeSantis as being flag-bearers of what some are calling the new right, is held by some to be the first steps of politically competent people taking the Trump mantle and bringing it back into something recognisably Republican again. So they believe that Vance's triumph might herald the early steps of the party actually moving beyond Trump. Now that's speculation. It will only be tested when it comes time to decide who the nominee for 2024 is going to be. Hawley said, he's the leader of the party, that's clear. If he decides to run, he will be the nominee. Between this development and Biden's increasingly strong statements regarding his own intentions, various commentators are now calling a Trump-Biden rematch as the most likely outcome for 2024. Really, America? I mean, really? I love you to bits, but honestly, all you have to do, literally, all you have to do is find one candidate who can speak in complete sentences and walk in a straight line without bumping into stationary objects. Do that they will almost certainly win. You have over 300 million people living there. These really are the best you can find? All right. 
In the US, the shockwaves have continued to reverberate across the political activist class from the leak of a draft Supreme Court ruling to overturn Roe v. Wade. In amongst the extreme rhetoric and angry demonstrations, the key response from Democrats seems to be settling in to several statements and positions. One, that this will be fought, but there's an awareness amongst most that there are no real mechanisms for stopping it if it turns out to be the final ruling. Two, this should therefore be a big issue in the November midterm elections. Pro-choice legislators need to be elected at all levels to fight back against state-level laws. And three, the argument has emerged in the meantime that if Road v Wade is overturned, this opens the door to a lot of other measures removing freedoms and rights, including such things as gay marriage, interracial marriage, legality of contraception, and so on. With that argument, it's key to understand that the question the Supreme Court is deciding isn't whether or not women have a right to an abortion, but whether the US Constitution protects abortion rights, in spite of the fact that the 250-year-old document, unsurprisingly, does not mention abortion rights. It's not as straightforward as you might think, because the founders viewed the Constitution as reserving all rights and powers that weren't positively granted to the federal government, to the people or the states. The Bill of Rights spelled out some of the fundamental liberties that could not be encroached upon by the state, but as noted by the Ninth Amendment, the fact that some rights were mentioned specifically shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Roe v Wade and the successor Planned Parenthood v Casey drew on the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, which prohibits any state from depriving any person of life, liberty or property without due process of law. And here's the thing. In recent decades, courts have used that provision as a device to protect not just procedural rights, as it explicitly spells out, but enumerated substantive rights, such as the rights to interracial marriage, same-sex marriage and contraception, as well, of course, as abortion. Hence the argument from Democrats that the overturning of the principle behind Roe v. Wade would affect those other rights as well. Justice Alito, in his draft summary, declared that not to be the case. He wrote that abortion is distinguished from the other issues because they involve the action of consenting adults, whereas abortion involves the death of an unborn child, and no child consents to its own destruction. In any case, slippery slope arguments on contraception and interracial marriage don't seem to have a huge amount of credibility even if they were right about the procedural knock-on effect, and so, for instance, Griswold v Connecticut were overturned, which would make it legal for states to ban contraception. But is there really any interest in doing that? The Catholic Church is the only significant faith group in the US that is against contraception, but it's well established that a majority of Catholics use birth control anyway. So it's hard to see who exactly would vote for a state restriction on such a thing. Likewise, there is now a significant percentage of existing interracial marriages. Justice Clarence Thomas is amongst them. So it seems unlikely that things would go in that direction. Nevertheless, it's telling that Democrats, having used the issue of abortion as a key rallying cry for decades, seem now to have concluded it may not be the driving force issue for them that it once was. 
Although the majority of voters that respond to opinion pollsters support Roe v. Wade, 50% versus 28%, it's by no means clear that it will nevertheless be a decisive issue at the polls. In the 23 hours after Politico published the leak draft opinion, it reported that Democratic fundraisers were reporting a relatively modest immediate uptick in donations. You should never make sweeping presumptions based on short-term reactions, because momentum can build. This is only a draft opinion, so reaction may be stronger if it turns out to be the final verdict. But the status quo is that people expect Democrats to be hammered due to Biden's underwater approval ratings, the cost of living crisis and, of course, the usual midterm election dynamics. After all, the Democratic candidate in Virginia last year, Terry McAuliffe, made abortion a key theme of his campaign following the Texas law. And he lost the state to Republicans. Plus, of course, this is a judgment of the Supreme Court, not Congress. So however you vote, in one sense, not going to affect the overturning of Roe v. Wade. The Supreme Court does not and really should not, be paying attention to what opinion polls say, only what the law says. Of course, it's never as simple as that. One reason why the politicisation of the court in the US remains a part of the problem in its broken political system. India has often prided itself as being the world's largest democracy. But is it anymore? And in particular, is it going to follow the lead of China in terms of using technology to track and censor its own citizens? So this week, the government's cybersecurity agency has required internet providers, data centre providers, corporates, other organisations to maintain records of all financial transactions with the public for five years. The government's also telling companies that provide VPN services, that's the virtual private networks, that enable people to use the internet with some degree of privacy, that they have to register validated names, emails and IP addresses of their subscribers. TechDirt described it as taking the P out of VPN. Basically, the Indian government wants to know everything it can about its citizens for purposes undisclosed. This has led to speculation that it's joining the numerous countries that are looking to copy China's control of internet use and censorship capabilities. The government of Narendra Modi has form on this, after all. At the end of last year, it ordered YouTube to block 20 channels for what it labelled as blasphemy and impinging on national security, and more channels have followed since. And that national security thing, that's the sort of catch-all beloved of dictators everywhere. With a bit of imagination, there's not much that can't be described as impacting national security. And it followed attempts to push Twitter into compliance with removing content that it disliked at the threat of arrest for Twitter's employees if it didn't. Twitter came back pointing out that it was the government's own directives that in its view were not consistent with Indian law. And it said this, in keeping with our principles of defending protected speech and freedom of expression, we have not taken any action on accounts that consist of news media entities, journalists, activists and politicians, it said. The pushback from Twitter in that case led the government to promote Coup, a Twitter alternative. Its logo is a bird, but a yellow one, so obviously totally different. And with a name like that, you'd have thought they would have used a pigeon but then not everyone has my marketing genius, I suppose. Unlike China's Twitter alternative Weibo, 
Coup is not state-run, and it hasn't made any specific statements that I can find to suggest that it agrees to be more Modi-friendly than Twitter has been. So whether it represents the endgame or just a staging post remains to be seen. Of course, the most visible sign of India's uncertain position right now is where it stands vis-a-vis the Russia-Ukraine war. India has close ties with Russia, benefits enormously from Russia's fossil fuels and its military equipment, and has therefore been amongst the countries refusing to condemn Putin for its invasion of Ukraine. That doesn't necessarily put it into the tight group of autocrats alongside China, for instance. India and China have been intense competition for some time. If India is inclined to follow China's example, it's because it suits Modi, and possibly India sees its interests more aligned with what it sees as emerging powers rather than the fading ones of the West. You could see the fine line this week. When Modi met President Macron, the joint statement expressed concern about the humanitarian crisis in Ukraine, but only France signed up to a statement condemning Russian forces' illegal and unjustified aggression against Ukraine. Meanwhile, in parts of India at least, citizens there are busy coping with a scorching heatwave that has been in place for the last couple of months. The heat it saw in March was the hottest in India since records first started being kept in 1901, according to the Diplomat website. Not the hottest temperatures overall, don't get me wrong, they're well within normal for heat waves, but the earliest onset, when usually the cooler early spring is needed for harvesting the wheat crop. The period of hot dry weather has reduced wheat yields substantially, which obviously isn't great news in a year when the war in Ukraine has effectively taken out one of the world's major breadbasket regions. As I covered a couple of weeks ago, India generally doesn't export more than a tiny fraction of its crop, but it was hoping to take advantage of higher world prices to do so this year and had signed a deal with Egypt. Whether the heatwave will deplete stocks to the degree that that becomes impractical now is somewhat in doubt. Such things add to the pressure on the government, and hence its propensity to shut down protest and dissent. So right now, you would say India is hedging its bets, looking to the West, looking to Russia, nervously across its border to China, trying to work out how best it should play its hand in this period of unpredictable geopolitical change. Sweden's VDEM Institute has said that India has already become an electoral autocracy, The question is whether that direction of travel is settled. Catherine Burblesing, the head teacher of the extremely successful Michaela School in London, also the chair of the Social Mobility Commission, was asked why fewer girls went into physics. And she gave a straight answer. Basically, as far as the experience at her school specifically, she said, it didn't appeal to them as much as it appealed to the boys. She said that girls may be reluctant to do the hard maths that physics requires. This apparently was the wrong answer. Not just wrong, but moral panic wrong. Which is stupid. I mean, it may well be the wrong answer, so fine, let's talk about it. But no, Burblesing was angrily denounced for, quote, perpetuating outdated stereotypes. Dame Athene Donald, Professor of Experimental Physics, said the comments were terrifying, really terrifying, 
And of course, some politicians and activists called for Burble Singh to lose her position because that's what we substitute for adult discussion these days. All the critics seem not to notice nor to care that her school has a stellar track record of achieving results and indeed getting girls interested in other science subjects. Its science department in 2019 was ranked as the third best in the country. The maths department came first. You'd think she might know what she's talking about. Specifically, she said this. Perhaps it is because girls are more inclined to be empathetic while boys are more systematic, as a large quantity of evidence suggests. This doesn't mean women can't be excellent physicists or mathematicians. Indeed, there are plenty of examples, including many of my own female maths and science teachers. But some of our girls have made the decision not to specialise in a particular subject and have done so with a clear mind. How very dare they? Note, she didn't say they can't do hard maths, she just said they choose not to. The open question, of course, is why is that a problem? Why do we think that unless something splits 50-50, the only explanation can be discrimination rather than the expression of a legitimate difference in preference? And we do know that it's not because of innate ability. In England, girls outperform boys in A-level and GCSE maths, at least they did last year for the first time. But studies have shown that it's the willingness to continue on that path which is where the sexes diverge. But none of that apparently matters. When an influential figure, even one with an enormous pedigree and track record of encouraging young people to succeed, say something very simple out loud, a thunderous response comes which seems to be based predominantly on protecting sacred cows. First, by simplifying what was said to a level of parody, the classic straw man process. And then they came to what were not disputes of facts, but essentially expressions of belief bordering on faith. It can only be the result of unconscious bias, discrimination and gender stereotypes. Well, look, do we shape our beliefs in line with evidence or do we denounce the evidence for failing your moral test? As always... That's a choice that we get to make. All right, I've occasionally mentioned my frustration with YouTube comments here. Let me take up that theme again. Let me give you an example of what happens. Here's a commenter from one of this week's videos. He wants to give me a hard time for what he's persuaded himself is my unspoken position on something. Fine, always happy to have a discussion. The point is, I see the notification of his comment. I go to the channel management interface and I can see and reply to his comment. As you can see, my reply shows up in the notification now. But I scroll down to the comments below the video. I cannot see his comment. Just doesn't show up. So I've had an extended exchange with this guy now. None of it's showing up to me on the actual page. Does it show up to him when he goes to that page? I don't know. I mean, he's seeing it somewhere because he's replying to my replies. But is anyone else seeing it? Apparently not. It's routine now for the number of claimed comments to a video not to match the number of actual comments visible that you can read. What do I need to do about this? Any ideas? Should I set up on a platform like Locals that has a discussion process built in? A Discord server? Or would those take away from the YouTube forum and potentially lower the interaction that YouTube sees and 
presumably credits for video with. I don't really know how that works. Tell me what you think in the comments below. You never know. Maybe we'll even see your comments. All right, rant over. Just enough time to thank the good people who support this channel on Patreon. Wednesday's live stream was demonetized by YouTube for whatever reason. So it's just a reminder of how I could not spend the time making these videos without that incredibly important group giving their support. If you'd like to join them in adding your support for the independent, fact-focused and non-ideological content that I aim to produce here, please head on over to patreon.com forward slash Baker. It is always appreciated. Either way, have a great week. My name is Malin Baker. This is The Malin Baker Show. Thanks for watching this video. If you liked it, please share with anyone else you think would also enjoy it. Word of mouth is really important to us. And if you've not subscribed yet, what are you waiting for? As the saying goes, that subscribe button won't smash itself. So.